to another edition of Outside is Overrated. This is episode six, and this is Tom Awesome with you once again. And I'm joined today by my friend Jared Hamels. Jared, welcome to the show. Hi. So Jared is a regular GM for our Tuesday Night Game Group. And I thought it'd be a great fit today because we're going to be talking about a couple different role-playing games, specifically running them. And they're two campaigns that Jared has been running for us, both Shadowrun and the Savage Worlds. So today on the show, we're going to talk about stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about Shadowrun. We're going to talk about overall running a role-playing campaign. Not just Shadowruns or the Savage World, but overall campaign structure and management. We'll talk a little bit about our favorite video games based on role-playing properties. And then we'll talk about the Savage World and the Deadland. So, Jared, welcome to your first podcast with me. <laughs> well, first podcast ever on anything. Welcome to the podcasting world. <laughs> so we've been friends for a couple of years now. I joined your Tuesday Night Game Group through some mutual friends, and I've had the pleasure of playing in two of your different campaigns. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your own role-playing history? Um, probably similar to many of you that listen. It uh, started off when I was uh, basically around uh, 10 years old. I uh, had some friends that were uh, already gaming a little bit. Uh, started off with the original first ed- well, first edition or basic D&D at the time, before I, advanced D&D. I never actually played Dungeons & Dragons. I bought the core rulebook like a month before Advanced came out. So I had one rulebook, and then the whole world changed. <laughs> yeah. So, no, we started off, had the old blue box set, and uh, ended up uh, getting uh, some of the dice. I actually still have a few of those blue dice that had uh, came with crayons. and uh, <laughs> The original D&D came with crayons? Yeah, a white crayon that you, you use to etch into the dice because the dice didn't have, like... You're kidding me. ...ink in the, in the dice, so you couldn't read them. So, yeah, if you ever wanted to cheat your rolls, it was really easy. And so I still can bring those out occasionally on a Tuesday night if I really want to mess with you guys. So. That's amazing. I had never heard of dice that didn't have the numbers colored in. <laughs> it's pretty bad. What else came in the blue box? Uh, at that time, it was just a player's guide. Um, God, trying to stretch my memory here. Player's guide and, and a GM's guide. So you basically had two thin books. So uh, basically everything you needed to play, as opposed to the current business model, where you buy the player's handbook, you buy the DM guide, you buy the monster manual, you buy everything else at 30 bucks a pop. Yeah, there was no monster manual. It was just like a few extra pages in the back of the, the GM's section. And then later on, there was, I think the... I can't remember if it came out separate or if it was with the box... But uh, it was Keep on the Borderlands came out with one of the, the original sets as well. So the original module that I ever played in. Oh, that's fascinating. Where did your role-playing history go from there? Throughout high school, it was just mainly D&D. Uh, at the time, we were, were not really using any other systems because there really weren't that many other systems out there. Had heard of this the Shadow Run at that time coming out in the uh, late 80s there. We should also point out that this is a time before the Internet. Well, yeah. Which is, <laughs> you know, it dates us a little bit, but it's hard to even fathom role-playing without the internet. We'll talk later about all the resources that you use to run a campaign, but just going to the store, buying the box that has the two books that you need, some dice and a crayon, it's just, it's hard to fathom in this day and age. Yeah. Well, and it was, we had a, a growing up in a small town, we had a little hobby game store that would sell the D&D stuff. You know, mom would never wanted to go there because... You know, it was always, like, just stuff that was a waste of money. Models, paints. All the cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. Moms don't get it. No, no, we don't get it. So uh, then we got into AD&D came out, and so you had all the hardbound books starting. And that's really when the, the current model started, where you're getting into, well, you got to have this model, the Ranger's Handbook. And then you had, you know, uh, I think it was uh, 
the uh, original basic set turned into advanced D&D and basic D&D, and so they wanted to try to get people starting in the basic rules, and then they had the advanced rules. So it was constantly trying to get people to buy things, and it, that, that model has carried on, obviously, till today. It certainly has. I think I misspoke earlier. I think the first book that I bought was a player's handbook for AD&D, which would have been, I don't know, mid to late 90s. It was shortly before 3.0 was the next edition, or 2.0? 3, 3.0. 3.0. AD&D was second edition. I say it. 3.0 is when I really got into D&D. I ran a campaign with my high school buddies, and we had it going for a few years. Uh, I mucked it up pretty good. We'll talk about it a little bit more when we're into running the system, but I tried creating my own class. That was a colossal failure. <laughs> I didn't follow the random loot tables. That was a pretty colossal failure. Basically, I, my friends were having a lot of fun, and I ruined everything, and then I took it all away. <laughs> Very sad story. So after AD&D and then 3.0, what other games have you played? After that, got into Star Wars was one game that we did with West End Games with some friends. Uh, this is more into the college era. Um, I tried to play second edition Shadowrun. Uh, that campaign never really got off the ground. Uh, we ended up doing quite a few other games like DC Heroes, which I enjoyed a superhero game. Uh, and that turned into using that same rule set. Uh, we, we had used GURPS on some stuff as well, the generic universal role-playing system. Not and, to be confused with MURPS, the Middle-Earth role-playing system. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And the uh, DC Heroes game had a book that was set in a setting built for the 40s, for like World War II era heroes. That sounds awesome. So in there, they had rules for like soldiers and, and fighting in World War II, and a friend of mine ended up building a Vietnam-based campaign based on, just on that system. Awesome. And that is probably, if you're talking about favorite games ever, uh, it was a time in college when you had all this extra time on your hands. and, and Instead of studying for classes, you're studying your role-playing rule books to make sure you're maximizing every role out of your character. Well, not even kind of beyond that at that point, even. We, we had done that before on D&D 3.5 and 3.0. The, the, this was more, we'd be living together, a few of us were in the same house at the time, other people would come over and it was basically you'd be out and about just doing stuff and all of a sudden you'd be like breaking into character even though we didn't have have uh, dice in front of us, an actual role playing it out. And there was just a lot of, it was just a lot of fun. It was probably the best experience I had. Did you guys go far enough to actually dress as your characters? No, LARPing or anything like that was not involved in this. Yeah, we've never come that close in my circle of role playing friends either. I think we talked about it once, but it was just, that's a whole other step that I don't think we were ready yeah, for. Yeah, I don't know that I would would ever have been ready for that. Uh, acting was not my forte, so I don't think that was, that was down there. Well, it was mine, but... It's a lot different putting on a costume and going on stage. I've worn dresses in two shows, by the way. It's a lot different getting in costume and going up on stage as opposed to hanging out with your buddies for a six-hour role-playing session. Yeah. It's just different. Yeah. Any other systems and games that you play that you want to touch on? Uh, went through, uh, ended up again going back, and it's just having been playing games since the early 80s here. Is, uh, Cyberpunk was another one, and then... And that's different from Shadowrun? That is different than Shadowrun, yeah. So Cyberpunk is based around, it's not really a magic system at all. Uh, it doesn't have, uh, it had some of the virtual reality elements, but it was kind of like Shadowrun Light in some ways in that sense. Uh, that sounds awesome. We should look into that in this day and age. <laughs> the rule set, though, is... is uh, I, I'm not, a, and we'll talk about Shadowrun here in a little bit. The rule set's different than Shadowrun, but again, it's not one that I enjoy. If you go back far enough, there was a lot of math back in the early early games, and Cyberpunk, the version we played, was from the late 80s there. So 
Again, you needed a calculator every time you pull out your dice. And that's not really fun. I love how modern role-playing games have stripped a lot of the math out of it. It's, I mean, I have no problem with math, but it just takes away from the immersion of the game. Right, right. And for me, it's turned into, and what I've found is what I love the best is the storytelling. And, and where I probably discovered that the most is in one of the other settings that, that I ended up playing in, which was in 7th C. And I eventually ended up running that with our Tuesday night group, I think, prior to you. Yeah, it was before me. And it, but it, again, it's one of those games where the setting is the flavor is just. It got, sounds like a pirate game. Oh, it definitely is a pirate game. Seven C. Tell us more about it. Uh, it's an alternative Earth, basically alternative European uh, game. You've got all the major players. If you you've got Avalon, which happens to be you know the United Kingdom and Britain. You've got uh, uh, Castile, which happens to be Spain. You know, that Vadachi, which happens to be Italy. So you've got all the countries. You've got uh, play on all of the tropes and stereotypes of those types of pirates, the swashbucklers, the, the, the romantic heroes. Um, you also get into... We both smiled when you said romantic, by the way. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. As we looked into each other's eyes. <laughs> and then you get into uh, the fairy and the fae when you get into the Avalon and the English history stuff, and King Arthur legend. And in the... Vestin, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name exactly, Vestin von Yamanyar, I think is how you pronounce it. It's basically your Scandinavian countries all up together and you got a bunch of crazy Norwegians and Vikings. Awesome. What kind of a dice system did he use? Uh, that is all D10 dice. And that one there is basically attribute and stat, and you combine the two values together and that's how many dice you roll. So you have three pips in, in a attribute and you have two pips in a skill, you get to roll five dice. 5 Cool. Well, out of all the campaigns that you've run, do you have any memorable moments from campaigns or memorable characters that you'd like to touch on? Uh, again, the Vietnam one that we played, just kind of an oddball one. What I, kind I of had, character did you play in Dom? He was, JB was a... Uh, and do you have flashbacks? I probably do, yes. I don't know if my character does, but... Uh, no, we, we did a lot of fun with that campaign, uh, it ended up be, being a special operations group is how the GM put it together. So a group of about four of us uh, at times, and we had our medic, and I was basically the leader, de facto leader of the group. And we ended up uh, going in and doing special operations missions behind enemy lines and blowing things up and having a good old time. Awesome. Um, how long did the campaign run? I want to say we probably did two years of actual time that we played it, and it was probably played pretty regularly, at least every other week, if not weekly, for a while there. That's awesome. So we, the, the the funniest moment was is when we had monkeys throwing rocks at us, and that, that's the one thing. <laughs> that's and we, beautiful. And we start shooting guns into the jungle just because, you know, we're all, like, scared crazy <laughs> trying to figure it out. So, yeah, there, that might be the flashback, if there is anything, is rocks thrown at us from monkeys. I bet the GF was just having a terrific time. Oh, that. he still brings it up, so... <laughs> Thinking of my own experience, the D&D 3.5 campaign that I ran, I mentioned that I ruined things a lot along the way. I basically screwed up every aspect of it that I could at some point or another. But one of the things I tried to do when I realized that I'd created a class and it just wasn't working, and the guy, so, turns out he was cheating, and I just had to try to... So what type of class did you create? Like one of the four basics, you five basics didn't work for you? It was like a modified mage. Like I tried to do away with the spells and do a mana system, and it just... It was just a bad idea. I mean, I was relatively new to role-playing at the time, thinking I was smarter than the rules, and I wasn't. 
So I set the party to actually go kill this character. So I was pitting the PCs versus one of their own, and we had brought in another person for this game. And what I didn't tell the party was that the person that we brought in was also actively trying to kill the party. Uh, he was, I think he was a druid. And one of the party members got knocked, incapacitated, and he's lying on the ground. And so this druid goes over to try to save him, and he tries to, um, I forget the spell, but he essentially has a chance to turn this character into something else. And he wound up turning him into a centaur. He tried to kill him and bury him, but instead he had this remarkable die roll and turned him into a centaur. And basically the game unraveled from there, but it was a pretty memorable campaign. One of my favorite role-playing experiences. A centaur. A centaur. <laughs> uh, I also had a lot of fun in the Shadowrun campaign I played in the same group. Uh, our group was chaotic. And now in our Tuesday night group, it's a pretty cohesive group. It's pretty straightforward. You do the objective, you get the thing, you bring it back, you get the reward. Nobody strays too far off the Well, we'll, we'll discuss that in a bit. I don't know about straying too far here. My interpretation of Shadowrun, and you've seen me playing in a campaign, you're Paranoia, paranoia is what I see when you play Shadowrun. <laughs> I wouldn't call it paranoia. I'd, I'd say I like to explore different options. And it's basically the same every time I play Shadowrun. I bring a lot of chaos into the game. I was playing this rigor, and we had one character in the party who could do computers and who was actually good at stuff, and the rest of us were a bunch of jack wagons. And they were in completing a mission, and we thought that it was going south, so we went to get the reward. And that character didn't like it very much, and it wound up being this running feud that we had for the entire length of the Shadow Run until the GM finally got sick of us, and we all got arrested in our home and just thrown in the dungeon, never to return again. He just took our characters <laughs> away because he was sick of the way we interacted. It's a, probably my number two role-playing memory. Yeah, I I have to say, honestly, I've been lucky, I think, as a GM to not have a group that was really that off the rails. I mean, you had me. Yeah, but it's still, this isn't... It, I hear horror stories in, in some of the other uh, podcasts I've listened to or, or reading online, some of the forums, and just the horror stories of GMing and going, where are these players coming from and how did they get into this? I mean... And just for a clarification, that's horror, not horror stories. Horror, yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy with the Tuesday Night Group overall. The, where we get it... In, well, we have to be. They're probably the only group that listens to this podcast. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Exactly. Especially Jared and Mike. So we end up, the biggest thing I have, well, let's talk about that in a little bit as we get into it. So. Sure. Any other memorable characters or campaigns you wanted to talk about before we moved on? No, I, th I think, I mean, that, that's probably JB's the biggest character I remember the most, and, and we'll go on from there. Well, that's great. Before we launch into our conversation on Shadowrun, I just want to take a moment to remind everyone that you can connect with Outsiders Overrated in a number of ways. You can email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That's overrated with two R's, overratedpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash outsidersoverrated or twitter.com slash, I think also outsidersoverrated, but it's been so long since I logged in that uh, I'm not 100% sure. And now I'm stuck with one hand to try to type in Twitter on the computer. It's not working. Jared, this whole system is falling apart. You're ruining everything. Of course, it's my fault. I'm the GM. It's always my fault. It's nice to have a scapegoat on the show. We're going to have to do this more often. <laughs> oh, yeah, there isn't a show in Twitter feed. Instead, tweet at me directly at Tom underscore underscore awesome. It's two underscores because I was not the first or the second Tom Awesome to reach Twitter. So, at Tom underscore underscore awesome. You can also find me on Instagram with the same name, Tom underscore underscore awesome. So, here we go. Shadowrun. Why don't you give us a brief overview of the Shadowrun world, Jared? I'll correct you on anything that I think you're completely off base on. 
For me, and I will say that because everybody has their own flavor of Shadowrun, you, you've got basically either two versions. You've either got the pink Mohawks or the black trench coats. That's that's in the vernacular that you get into. I tend to lean towards the black trench coat version of Shadowrun and, and less of the pink Mohawk and gangers and, and drugs and, and uh, VR aspects. For me, Shadowrun is, is really a combination. If you look at like the Blade Runner movies, which I haven't seen, but we'll talk about that. Or not movies, but Blade Runner, hopefully a new one coming out here soon. And then uh, as far as D&D, you've got the same types of classes. You've got your orcs, elves, dwarves, as well as normal humans. Um, Which is interesting because this is still Earth. It's a ways down the road, but it's interesting to have the concept of these fantastic creatures and playable races that you'd see every day in the streets of Seattle. Well, you know, we were all scared of Halley's Comet. You know, coming around back in 1986, so you know we we had to come up with a reason why everybody was going to mutate, and so it goes. Yeah. So you, you basically just have a, a world of of dark future. Corporations run everything. Countries have kind of gone away, and so you're in a setting of of just trying to survive. Everybody's poor unless you happen to be born into wealth, and so basically everybody's a shadow runner in it that's playing the game. Namely, they're they're a criminal, but they're doing what they need to do to make ends meet, and so the stories all revolve around doing illicit activities and and uh, trying to beat beat the world. It's a lot like Firefly meets The Matrix. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I'm brilliant. So, <laughs> I like Shadowrun a lot. I think that the setting is really intriguing, and uh, the way that there's always something to do. Like there's always a corporation to take down. There's always someone that's been kidnapped. There's always someone to kidnap. There's always valuable information you can steal. There's robots. There's droids. There's samurais. There's well, maybe not samurais, but ninjas. There's well, a street lot of, samurai. Huh? There's street samurai. There's monks. There's there's a lot of variety within the game. And I think that one of its greatest strengths is that anything you could imagine, you can do in Shadowrun. And I think the idea of having it in the future is a nice thing too. And that, that's why it, it makes it magical in the sense that you've got not just magic, but you've got a world that you can do anything in, like you said. With that freedom also comes one of the most cumbersome things that we think of with Shadowrun, and that is the rule set. I mean, we both like the setting, we both like the game a lot, but one of the th- biggest challenges is there's so many rules, and there's so many different ways you can go with your character. And I cannot imagine how you as a GM were trying to corral an alchemist, a ganger, a rigger, a decker, and whatever else we had in our party, and trying to shoehorn us into one cohesive adventure when you had this huge group. Yeah, well, we, we've got seven players in the group, which is the largest I've ever GM'd. Uh, it is It's not a deal. I mean, I can't complain because I was number six into the group, and yeah. six is probably too many, but you guys are still welcoming, so, you know, the more the merrier. We'll yeah, uh, uh, preferably, I like four. I think it. I think it's a good number. You either have three role players or four role players and a GM. I, th- I think you're in a good good situation. At seven, what you end up with is is what we have commonly happening. We joke about it internally is is splitting the party, but at this point as a GM, I almost just know what's going to happen. Oh, it is. It's more rare that the party is actually all in one place doing the same thing together than it is that. Yeah, if the group actually worked together, I'd have a harder time as a GM because it'd be that's... impossible. It'd be a super group of seven that would take down anything you threw at us. Yeah, exactly. So, so instead, uh, really from from running it and 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 everything, pulling this group together, uh, Shadowrun has a great concept in the idea that again, you're all criminals and you're all trying to find work. So, you, so you go through a Johnson or a Fixer and you find work. So, and everyone loves playing with their Johnson. Uh, yes, exactly. 
So we we uh, uh, went through a situation where I was like, well, I'm not going to be able to bring this group together easily. Screw it. I'm just going to have a Johnson hire all of you. And that's how we threw it together. And you guys decided to work together from there. Which makes a little bit more sense than, say, a D&D setting where you're working for, I don't know, somebody on one side of the law and you have all these characters with all these alignments strewn all about. Before we get too deep into Shadowrun, we should also mention what kind of a system it is. It's a completely a D6 system where you build these dice pools, and um, I'm a little foggy on it now. Can you give a little more color? The basic core concept is, is you've got your stats, and you you have, again, dice pools. It's it's based on stats and skills, uh, or attributes and skills. You, you build your dice pool from that, uh, and these dice pools get to be huge sometimes, because depending upon if you've got cybernetic or biometric enhancements, or if you're fighting in AR or VR as a deck, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality as a, as a decker, you can get into some doubling up your dice pools and things like that. We have one vehicle roll. Where didn't you have to roll something ridiculous like thirty dice? Yeah, yeah. There was one where there was a vehicle roll of an explosion happening, and it was thirty thirty d sixes on a dice pool. That seems like too many. Yeah, I, I am thankful I've got a tablet and app that I can take care of to do that rather than having to pull out 30d6. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh, if I remember right, like a 5 or a 6 is a success, a 1 is a failure. Is that the basic Yeah, yeah, of the dice? success. Basically, that's the gist of it. So yeah. you roll your 8 or your 10 dice, and you're looking for a certain number of successes. You need 5 sixes, you need 6 sixes, you need some, there's some target threshold that you're trying to hit. You, you have to have a certain number of successes, and then once you have that, then, yeah, that that's basically, it's just a threshold system, no different than any of the other RPG systems out there for the most part. What were some of the tools you used to build our campaign and kind of shoe or shovel us along? Well, I, I first started off with just the core rulebook. Um, really, I wasn't going to run Shadowrun originally with this group at that point. Um, it was a recommendation of one of the other players in the group. And a few people were tagged on. I'm like, yeah, we haven't played that. And personally, I was like, well... Is that my recommendation? Actually, no. That would have been Darren at the time. Huh. Yeah, I've always been fond of Shadowrun, but I never had a very in-depth handle of the rules. But proceed. Yeah, so we, we ended up going through uh, just the core rule book at the, to begin with. and Or I did. I shouldn't say we. I did talk it over with one of the other players in the group that GM some with Don at that point. Um, we ended up going and just kind of looking at some of that stuff and talking over a couple of things. Then from there, I started looking for online resources because I realized looking at the book is, I remember, it's like 300 pages. It is huge. It is a gigantic book. Uh, plus side is it's one book to run the whole game though, right? It's the player's handbook, the DM's guide, all kind of... You can together. start the game and play any of the character classes with that book, yes. But they get into, well, specialty books for the ma magic users. They get into specialty books for, for deckers and riggers and that type of thing. So Another quick quirk that I like about Shadowrun, magic is illegal, so if you cast a spell... And if it's of a certain power, you're probably going to get arrested. So it really rings in the magic users. What are your thoughts on limiting magic? I, if, if you noticed, I actually never really limited it much in the campaign at that point. Uh, you guys self-limited more than, than I had to limit it. I think Jerry is trying to say that I was a shitty alchemist that never accomplished anything in this campaign. Well, no. And Mike, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of you either. <laughs> No, but 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 I think the thing was is is I went into it a little gun shy, and I openly stated with the group up front that you know I I'm hoping for some help on these rules because again it is cumbersome. At this point, I'm not in college anymore, where I've got you know 30 hours a week and can avoid you know studying for for my latest geology exam. Yeah, we're all adults. We all have jobs. We all have 
adult lives, it's harder to find, again, just time to study role-playing rules. Exactly. And, and, and just getting a chance to just go bounce stuff off of another person and kind of go, okay, is this how this works or not how this works? It's not like uh, my wife isn't really into this genre, so mm-hmm. we... We, we don't exactly uh, end up, I can't just go to her and say, oh, right, let's let's play this out. It's not exactly her thing. So so this was all with me. And so really, this is where I started having to reach out and get into a lot of resources. And I had done this with other games before, but really with Shadowrun, I, I found the world online uh, where there's a lot of podcasts out there. There, Well, more, more now than originally. When I first started, there was only a handful. But I found them and... and they were really helpful, actually. The community is really strong from a GM's perspective, where there's entire podcasts on like how to run, like Magic 101 or Rigging 101, or oh, just just World Setup, uh, Combat 101. So, and they make it seem it's like anything. They make it seem so easy. Um, part it's of it. Like, is, oh, that makes perfect sense. You just roll your 17d6, and you need five successes. Right. You just find this pool for your attack, and then this other person rolls this pool for their defense, and then you build another pool from that, and this builds your, you know, what the actual outcome is. Eureka! It's easy. Exactly. Let's go play it right now. Yeah. And and what I found is is, is as we play, I mean, I felt, and what we get into, and and again, it's it's the strength of the game is is it's got such a wonderful world. But the, the disadvantage of the game is that the rule set is cumbersome because it is such a large world and so encompassing. They've tried to create rules for everything. And going back to even first edition Shadowrun, I think what you had people coming from is they were coming from the D&D world where things were... It, not saying the first edition wasn't complicated. It was at times because it, it came out of a miniatures game. But then they built Shadowrun. They were like, well, we don't have miniatures, but we want to have this idea where... Everything's got to be real. You got to have real and gritty damage, and people can die, and blah blah blah. So we we got a system that has evolved now through fifth edition, where they've tried to make it more role playing friendly, but it still is as cumbersome as say the the original you know first and second edition D and D rules, in my opinion. Yeah, it's very very challenging. You mentioned damage. I think that's an interesting system in Shadowrun as well. As you get more wounded, you get worse at doing stuff. You as wounds pile up or as non-lethal wounds pile up, you start getting worse and worse at different abilities and you start having to take dice out of your dice pool. I always thought that was a unique and interesting mechanic. Yeah, I like it. It's actually in a couple of the other systems I've used as well, but it, it I, I do enjoy that as a mechanic because the idea is, is you do get worse. Yeah, as you get more beat up, more wear and tear, you get worse at everything you do. One of my very close friends, also known as the Rogue Hippo, a frequent fan and writer of the show, has, that's been his biggest gripe of D&D over the years is that even if... Say so your character has 100 hit points, you're down to 2, you're still swinging your sword at full capacity. I always, it kind of ruined the game for him. He couldn't move past that to accept it. Well, D&D is all about just having the jam putting out a character that's got way more hit points, and so it's just the whittling down effect over time. Yeah, mm-hmm. they can still keep on doing things usually to, to thwart the party, but really it just becomes a hack and slash fest when you're fighting the big bad at the end. A war of attrition. From Shadowrun, moving on with, with some of those resources, like I said, they, the community online is great. There, there's Shadownet as far as forums, and I'd even call out the Arcology podcast, which I subscribe to now for quite a few years. And they they have an actual play that is actually pretty fun to listen to. Um, the GM just has, you can tell he's been playing since second edition and has such a, a feel for the rules that it just flows. And I, I wish that was how our game had gone. But ultimately, that's where I decided to kind of move into another system. I, I want to continue the world. I want to continue the story. 
continue with the characters. But the the system is so cumbersome when you when it takes two nights of our gaming, which yes, I know we, we get tangent. We're not exactly hardcore. We get tangented a little bit sometimes, all the time. But at the same time, if it takes two nights to do a battle, it's really hard to to keep focus on storyline and the plot and what's going on and why am I why is my character here and why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. And I, I to me it wasn't fun as a GM. I I couldn't suspect that it was that much fun at times for the players as well. From my perspective, it was often very fun. You did a great job. One of the things that I appreciate most about you as a GM is it seemed like every character had their role in the story. Everything had something that was built for them that was centered around them. And I thought maybe it was just your way of engaging me more, but I felt like you did a really great job of roping me in with character-specific stuff just for me. Yeah, well, and that's actually one of the things I do try to do. And and when I when I GM, I've, I've learned, and, and I've had some good GMs that I've been with, and and I learned from one after I moved down here to the Twin Cities and, and uh, learned those skills. Uh, prior to that, I don't think I was the best at, at that type of thing. I thought we did a good GM. We had a good story. But again, you had a smaller group and everybody's like, okay, let's go do it, you know, do task A, you know, mm-hmm. here. Okay, we got to go capture the princess or, you know, or, or retrieve the princess or we've got to go kill the dragon or no, we got to go make friends with the dragon, you know. So uh, fine, everybody was focused on that story, but... But you didn't always have, and in D and D, you don't always have all these moments to shine. And what I learned was, is you've got to build some opportunities. And the key isn't that I'm, I'm saying, okay, this is this is Tom, this is your character's time to shine in the game. Um, I'm not going to tell you that out loud, but I'm going to give the opportunity there. And if you choose as a player to pick it and and go with it, you've got that. And if you don't choose, that's fine too. You know, it's it's you're playing that character, and we'll move on. But it, it's a situation where, yeah, when I'm writing the story, writing the plot, it's, it's kind of like uh, basically doing an outline similar to a writing practice, um, going back to my English classes from college here, but building an outline and building, building a structure or framework, but understanding as a GM, all hell could break loose and I could end up having the party split with seven people who know seven different ways. So, <laughs> so you never know what's going to happen. But I'll say this as a message for my close friends that I've been gaming with for since high school. Jared's a much better GM than I am. You guys got such a raw deal in our gaming group, but none of you want to be the GM, so suck it. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't want to be the GM either, so. <laughs> but it just happened. We played Shadowrun for roughly a year and a half, almost every yeah, Tuesday on, night. Yeah, pretty regularly. There were some breaks in there, you know, holidays come up and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you did a really good job of keeping it all rolled together. I think we as players maybe didn't hold up our end of the bargain as well as we could have. We had lots of slow moments where people didn't really know what their characters could do, how the rules worked, like what sometimes seemed like not the most difficult things wound up being a 20-minute diversion into the rule book. How do you handle a situation like that as a DM? Well, uh, a good question. Uh, originally, uh, I don't think I handled it as good as I could have. The biggest thing was, is we we all knew we were getting into a new system, and I kind of asked the players to help me out. And for the I most, I don't think we did a terrific job of that. We, we, we got all s- tried to a degree. But yeah, yeah, I, I did get some help. But I think what happens is, is it's like, okay, well, you read the book. Well, now six months later, we finally get to a situation where you want to, you know, use you, you know, use a rule that that is obscure or different, or going, oh yeah, my character can do this. How does this work? And then it became the 20-minute de-evolution into it. Because I want to do it right, but at the same time to keep the story flowing, there's times when it's like, you know what, let's just wing it. And that's one of the things online you'll hear about to say, you know, from a GM advice is, is there are times you just got to wing it, come back to it, 
and go, you know, I know we did it wrong, but we'll, we'll do it right next time. And so from that standpoint, it's, it's, it gets tough to, to always make a note to yourself to say, okay, I need to go review this section of the rules. Uh, what I started to figure out was, as part of my outline is going, okay, I know we're going to go into a actual combat tonight. And I know that the NPCs are going to have these devices or these types of things. And I know that I've got players that like to, I don't know, use grenades all the time or something. Mm -hmm. So I better get really, you know, boned up here on, on what the rules are on how grenade works. And then in Shadowrun, you actually have, it's not just that it explodes and does a radius damage. It reflects off hard surfaces. So you got to understand those rules as too, because again, it, it gets really complicated on this. So knowing that you've got reflective surfaces or knowing as a GM going, I don't want to deal with that. So I'm not going to put it in a situation where you're going to have a reflective surface mm -hmm. to have to deal with. So those were all the, the nuances that I think I got better with as time went on. But ultimately, there was times when, when truthfully, I, I didn't know the rule off the top of my head. I, I'd give myself, you know, a minute or two to try to look in the book and went, you know what, this, you know, screw it. We're going to go forward and, and let's keep the role playing going. Don't let the rules get in the way of a good game and don't let the rules get in the way of fun. And that's my, my, my problem with Shadowrun ultimately was, is I felt too often for me as a GM is I was being relied on to always be the rules person, which I know that's part of the role. But it's a cumbersome burden at this stage in our lives as one person to understand all the ins and outs of such a complex system. Yeah, and that's why D&D &D is so nice in some ways that we go back to that. You know, I could probably play 3.5 right now, and I haven't played it in, like, a few years, but could go back and play it right now and just go, yep, I can make a character in about a half hour at most. And I know it's fully rules-laden, as bad as Shadowrun is. Do you think that's a product of the rules being elegant or just a familiarity with the overall system? Overall, I'd say it's it gets into a familiar. It, it's both. I think the D and D three point five or three zero originally was a much better laid out system than even where Shadowrun five zero is right now. the The rules are are still cumbersome at times, but they are pretty clear. And I, like you said, elegant is a good way word for it. the 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 way things fit together, the way the feats fit together, all that. Most things are going to give you a plus two modifier or a minus two modifier or plus four or minus four if it's really big. Shadowrun, it's it's not like that. There's no rule of thumb that you can go by. There's no, well, there's a very specific rule, and you better find it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and oh, this armor does this, or this this weapon does this damage, and this is different than this other weapon. And and so you have four pistols in the group, and each pistol does things, you know, does it differently. And, and then you've got to know, do you have this, you know, smart link? And so do you get, does the player get extra bonuses to that? Or does the NPC get those? And it, it just gets to be too complicated. Too, too many, too many modifications to every base rule. If you had to rank Shadow Run versus all the other role-playing games that you played, where would it sit for you? At this point, I love the setting. I'll go back to say that. At this point, though, it, it's down the list a little ways. It's not my favorite. And, and mainly because as a GM, it, it hasn't been fun to run. It really hasn't. Um, I, I enjoy the group we've got, but at least I'd put, you know, the the D&D games, the, the the Meg system, Mayfair game system, which was at the DC Heroes. Uh, I'd even put it behind just the, the modern D20 or Star Wars D20 rules I've played in those systems. I'd put it behind all those because, again, it's just a, it's just a tougher system to run. I'm going to go kind of the complete opposite. It's my favorite, which might seem surprising, but even though it's horrible and there are a lot of challenges, it's 
I think the setting is what really does it for me. Having I love the futuristic kind of not post-apocalyptic, but the futuristic, dystopic future kind of setting and the possibilities within it as a player, having never actually had to run it, I would argue that it's my favorite system of all. Before we move on, are there any GM resources that you want to give another shout-out to in case anyone listens to this and actually wants to run a Shadowrun campaign? Like I said, I'll call it the Arcology Podcast is one of my favorite. Uh, How do you spell that? Do you have an idea? A-C... I'm sorry, A R C H. O L O G Y, so archaeology. Interesting. Not archaeology. Yeah, Ar- I would have probably looked up archaeology. Well, that's that's. I what also Google- just touched your foot on the team. This just got into it. <laughs> that's what uh, Google will always say too is archaeology when it, when you try to try to find it. So, but it, it's actually a GM. I believe he lives in Wisconsin. Has an online play group and they play uh, on a regular basis. And he's got actual play podcast on there for gosh probably the last two years at least uh there, there's well in excess of 100 hours of actual play wow so and I'm, I'm behind right now and i started with it within like the first probably 90 days of this podcast going live and i'm way behind on listening to it i just don't have the time to put forth into the resources of, of even listening to this let alone the fact that they're playing it and then on top of the the actual play, they've got the podcast portion where they talk about rules and give GM resources and player resources. But I think it is one of the the best ones. He brings people from within the community, the the role playing community from Catalyst Games onto the podcast. He he brings people from there. They've got what they call the Shadowrun missions, which is kind of their live environment that that affects the meta game or and changes the overall plots of of the overall game that he brings those people on and then he brings on people that have been playing Shadowrun for 20 years that are just experienced GMs. They may have other podcasts or other resources themselves. So from there it branches out and you can find other things online, whether it be on Shadow Grid, which is right, which is tied to the forums to the uh, Catalyst Games website, or then you can get into Reddit as another resource. Although Reddit I use for other games as well. Well, maybe it's buyer beware, but Shadowrun can be a very fun and rewarding game if you have the time to, you know, devote a good portion of your life to learning the entire rule system. It can be a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. I, I think I would enjoy playing in it as well. I, I think, again, for me as a GM, it's been the least fun game to run. Uh, but as a player, I, I was always excited to play in it. I'd still, I'd probably, if I got into it right now, I'd play a Technomancer or Mage right out of the gate just because, and those are crazy rules to know. But at the same time, I think those are just the fun characters that you can get into, like you said, within the world. It's a wonderful setting. And that's why I'm not giving up on it and why we'll talk about Savage Worlds here in a minute. But I'm planning on converting everybody into a Savage World setting from a rule set, but it's still going to be Shadowrun. And it's going to follow all those same same background stories and that type of thing within that rule set. That'll be fascinating. Before we launch into the Savage Worlds and the Deadlands... I want to talk a little bit just about running a campaign, whether it be D&D or Star Wars or Murps. But overall, let's give our listeners an opportunity to build their skills to be better GMs. Now, we talked about where Shadowrun ranks in your list of systems to play, and it's towards the bottom of the list. What system is at the top of your list? Believe it or not, probably still either D&D, the, the D20 system, uh, or related systems with that, whether it be modern or Star Wars. Again, I think it was just a very fluid system. 
I know the rules in and out. And for me, for running it, it's prep time is just very, very low at this point. I'm, I'm expecting Savage Worlds to maybe go ahead of that as we continue on, as I get more comfortable with it, just because it's so much simpler and uh, ends up allowing for a lot more elements of storytelling and, and interaction with players from a, a role-playing aspect rather than getting into, we got to roll, like you say, you know, 30 dice to figure out how this explosion went. One of the things that immediately I found interesting in the Savage Worlds was the dice system as opposed to other systems like D&D is a D20 system, Shadowrun is a D6 system, you mentioned another system that was a D10 system. In Savage Worlds, you're using all of the dice, D4, D6, D8, D12. I can't remember if it goes beyond the D12. Uh, it only goes beyond D12 for some specific roles, but uh, as far as a character goes, no, D12 is the top that you'll ever have an attribute or a skill. We've talked about it a little bit earlier, but let's focus on the ideal number for our campaign. You said that three or four is a perfect number. I agree more. That seems to be, it's easier to balance for a group that size. It's easier to keep a group of that size on task, and it's easier to keep things just moving in general. Uh, agreed. The, 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 the size of the group, like I say, with, with having seven currently that we're running, it, it does present challenges. It really is like running two groups. From a prep standpoint, I've got to be prepared for, for a lot of different things. And really, like I say, why I'm starting to like the Savage World system is it's rules light, but not, not, not meaning that there isn't rules for it. There are rules for things, but the idea is, is the GM calls for a role when they need to call for a role. They can ignore a role, ignore the need for a role or a rule when they don't need it, when the story doesn't call for it. So it allows for people to play and, and play in character, hopefully a little bit more. And then that in and of itself will keep players engaged if they're able to stay in character and not be distracted by what's going on around them, whether it be, you know, electronic devices in the room or a TV or playing hockey. or Was something. there a uh, ban on Marvel Puzzle Quest on one of the nights when I was away? Because I remember coming back from a week or two away and suddenly nobody was allowed to play Puzzle Quest anymore. It was a collective decision that we needed to put some focus back on gaming because it became basically a BS night and nobody actually, we, we didn't accomplish much. So, no, no formal ban, but... Uh, it know. felt like a formal ban. <laughs> We're coming back to it. One of the problems with a group this size, or with any group, really, is that you'll always have some form, unless you're super-duper hardcore, you'll always have some form of drop-in and drop-out play. Someone can't make it, and you don't want to cancel it for the rest of the players, or someone's in town, and they want to hang out, and they want to play, and they have some kind of background. How do you usually handle having more or less players than your usual group? Ultimately, that has been probably the toughest thing I've had to deal with, having a large group, the the drop-in, which sounds odd because you'd think, well, you, you've got enough characters to play. It's not a big deal to have this. But but if you plan for a group of seven and then all of a sudden you've got a group of five... Then some people are going to die. Yeah, th th things are going to be bad. And, and ultimately, I don't care if I kill a character, but for the most part, it hasn't really happened. And it's not that I'm pulling punches. It's just normally this group plays pretty well together. But again, when you've got people dropping in and out, it, it does make it hard from a challenge rating standpoint. So if you're playing D&D, there's tools within the system built for what I just said called challenge rating or CR for a GM to figure out. So you can just tone it back. Okay, originally I planned I needed 10 zombies in the, in the room plus a wraith. Now I'm just going to have five zombies in the wraith, and, and that'll be enough. Or all of a sudden I know the cleric's not there, so... Well, maybe that battle isn't going to happen this week, and I need to postpone it somehow, and i got to come up with an interlude that drags out the storyline but allows for us to get to where we need to be. 
there are times though that I can't do that, and it just puts the other players in a, in a tough situation as as we gain. So planning for it, I'd say the, the the key thing has been flexibility and the ability to improv at times, knowing the system well enough, and that's why I'm not liking Shadowrun necessarily is one of the big things. I it's hard for me to improv at this point. If if I have to do that because a player drops in or drops out, it get it gets difficult because I'm just not comfortable with it. But as you're more expert with a more comfortable system, I, I think you end up being able to to be able to adapt pretty easily. And so right now, like say Savage Worlds, I'm still learning it. And with a group this size, yeah, we've had some drop in, drop out type of thing already. But part of it is 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 there's guidelines in there. For the record, I'm always the worst culprit in drop in and drop out. <laughs> I'm at annual conference in the spring. I like to spend time with my wife. I'm so Tuesday night game group guys, I'm sorry. Yeah. So we <laughs> We end up uh, uh, having a situation in, in from GMing that that says, well, the general rule of thumb is if you got an adversary and if you're going to have a combat, you have one one creature or or adversary against per player character in the group. So if one's not there, you, you take away one of the combatants that, that they're going to go against. So that's just an easy combat. It'd make it more advanced combat. Medium level is one for one plus two extras. And with a group this size, I've added on and just said, well, it's going to be three extras because it's basically like running two groups, not one group. If the group pops, drops down to four people one night, I'd be able to drop it down to, you know, the, the four adversaries plus the two characters like it recommends if you want the adversarial thing. So it, it, it's knowing the rules and understanding it and being able to adapt to it. I think flexibility is one of the biggest, most important skills that a GM can have. I remember from my DMing heyday back when I was playing D&D 3.0 with my buddies that the group was notorious for not doing what I wanted them to do. It almost felt like at times they were trying to spite me. Like I'd have this adventure laid out where they had to go from point A to point B and fight certain things along the way. And it generally scaled out so that they'd gain a level after every play session. And the guys would decide, nah, fuck those guys. We're not, I don't like humans, so we're not going there. We're not doing this. I remember one time we actually played an entire night, like an eight-hour session, completely improv off the top of my head because right from the starting point, the group completely veered off track and I had to just adjust and it wound up being a pretty remarkable evening of role playing. I, yeah, I've had that too. In one of the shadow runs uh, that we've had the one night, we ended up spending an entire night dealing with a combat at like just a, a grocery store, convenience store type of thing. And that's totally was not any part of the story, but the entire night was centered around dealing with like three gangers because the group was mad that there were gangers in this territory. So let's go shoot them and let's go snipe them and, and get into a big, big fracas. And, and ultimately none of that was planned. It was, yeah, randomly. Yeah. You see some gangers. Oh, we got to go after them now. Oh no. You know? So it's like, and I think from the player perspective, the players, I, I had, a couple people in the group say, hey, that was fun. You know, had a good time with it. Totally improv. Not, not one part of that was planned for part of that night. I know it hasn't been much of a problem with our Tuesday night group because the group is already huge. But have you come across situations as a GM where people have wanted to bring in a buddy or bring in someone for a one-time standoff adventure? And how did you adjust for a situation like that? For the most part, I haven't. It hasn't been... I am so envious. <laughs> Rogue Hippo's brother used to like to play with us very occasionally, so he'd come in, make a character for one session. Actually, the co-host, of the regular co-host of OIO, Jake, he's, our friendship started when he was a stand-in character for one of our D&D campaigns. I never met the guy before. He comes to my parents' house in Mora with one of my buddies, and he makes this character that he assumed he'd never play again, and it was Bondage Meister. <laughs> 
a fighter dressed in all leather that loved sheep. <laughs> and from there, our friendship blossomed. So I guess this is a challenge I've had to deal with more. Usually in our sessions, we very rarely break things off mid-adventure. It's not like Tuesday night where we have to work the next morning. Like We'd go on these role-playing retreats where we'd play hardcore for like a weekend, or we'd play an eight-hour session, and usually we'd tidy things up. So for me, the hardest part was trying to find a logical reason for these people to show up. And one of my favorite tricks was the group always has a home base of some sort. So like everyone... Everyone that they're friends with would be invited into this home base, and then if they didn't go on the mission, you know, they were distracted on some side tracker. Sometimes we had players with multiple characters, and they'd choose which character they'd want on a mission. The other ones would just be hanging out back at the base, or guarding the base, or whatever. And that was probably the most flexible option that I could come up with for welcoming new players to the game. Yeah, I like I said, I haven't had to deal with it too much. In college, a little bit more. We'd have some drop-in, drop-out type of thing, but... For the most part, I didn't actually GM as much in college as I did after post-college or later in college. Uh, the the group that I came with down here in the Twin Cities was pretty small. And so it, I, I ended up with a GM that GM'd all the time. So I got lucky there. And then as, as my group of collective friends moved into the Twin Cities, I wanted to play with them, do some gaming with them. And, and ultimately, we're, you know, formed this group that we currently have on Tuesdays and, and there hasn't been much in and out and there's not a much one night stand type gaming as far as that goes. But again, like you said, we only have at most three hours of game time and realistically it's about two and a half, even if we're on a focus night and it's two, if we're not focused. And it can be very hard to really dive into it. And that's been the biggest adjustment for me in playing with our Tuesday night group is my background is in these hardcore sessions where, like, we choose a Saturday or we choose a weekend. And oh, we I love that. I, I love doing that, and I would love to do that again. I, those were fun. Like I say, when you talk about memorable characters, that's that's where those memorable characters come from. Is is you're you're getting tired because you've been gaming for hours and you're all getting loopy and hopped up on, on Mountain Dew and Doritos, <laughs> and and uh, who knows what's going going to happen. But yeah, I, I miss that gaming. Actually, it's just not with life the way it is. It just doesn't doesn't comply. Someday we'll all retire. The rest of the Tuesday night, like 10 years before me, but someday <laughs> we'll all retire and we can go back to hardcore sessions. What other skills do you personally value in a GM? Like I said, it, the improv aspect of it is probably the biggest one. Being prepared is another one. It, I agree, and that's one of the things I appreciate about you. And looking back, it's one of my glaring weaknesses. Like I appreciate the way you have an outline for the story. Like, the way that I set up adventures was like, I'd be going through the monster manual and be like, oh, that'd be cool. Oh, that'd be cool. Oh, oh don't get me wrong. Cool. I've done that. But, but you seem to do a better job of weaving it into a cohesive story, whereas our D&D story is basically like, well, you guys hate humans, so you're kind of these outlaws, and here's a cave, and somebody tells you to go fight some shit. Well, that's all D&D. That's all D&D is. Hooray, I nailed it. <laughs> you're welcome, high school friends. The, the best thing I've heard is is uh, a podcast related to Savage World, and they call it Murder Hobos. <laughs> And I, I really think that that's basically it. It is you're you're dealing with murder hobos. That's D and D characters to to a T right there. That's awesome. So preparation, flexibility. I'm sure there are other valuable qualities, but I'm having a hard time thinking of them. Yeah, I mean, it's a job. Okay, being a DM is or a GM is a job. Where the characters, all they have to know is the basic rules that pertain to their stuff. Where a GM has to basically know everything that could pertain to the situations that they're walking right. into. And then I'd say for if you're going to GM, one of the big things too is feel free to steal. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. If there's a there's a storyline in a book that you went, God, this would be awesome, I you know to 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 run, use it. 
change it, you know, change characters, change setting. Hell, you can take a, a, an old West scenario, you know, with a standoff at the OK Corral and build that into Star Wars. Super easy. And now you got a standoff at, you know, a spaceport. And this makes me think of a Tuesday night adventure where we actually went to the island of Dr. Moreau. Yes. Was that Mike running that campaign? No, uh, Mike da- not running. Darren. Darren, Darren running that. Yep. Exactly. But if you're going to steal it, steal from the best. And it's fun. And, it, and it's things where you, you use things that give people, uh, kind of helps their imagination or their mind's eye. Again, we're all adults. We're all busy. We've got life. And sometimes the imagination isn't always kicked on all the time when we come to game night. You know, so so just recently I, I came up and we had this voodoo character. What did I do? Made him look like the guy, the Bond villain from, I can't remember which one, Living Daylights or whatever it is. So, you know, use things, bring things in. You know, I, I, I've, I've, I've embellished things you know, in ways to to bring in that imagination into the game and hopefully add a setting that's memorable. And that's probably the final thing as a GM is is make it memorable because that's what your character, that's what your players want, what the characters want. They want a they want a memorable game. Nobody know? wants to be just hack and slash kobolds for two hours. Right, not all the time. Sometimes it's fun, but <laughs> especially if things happen. But but yeah, make it memorable and and have a way to 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 have elements that, like I said, from a preparation standpoint. Prepping is, is making sure you've got elements available for all your players to be able to participate in. Or if you're not going to have something like I've done before, Shadowrun had it where, because you're basically dealing with three worlds in that setting where you've got a magic world, uh, you know, the, the astral plane, you've got a, a matrix world with uh, virtual reality, and then you've got the physical world. And so you have nights on end where it's all physical world, physical world. But you've got to give the opportunity for the, the other worlds to, to come out and for those characters to have a chance to to express who they are and really shine. And This and, didn't come up in our Shadowrun discussion, but I fucking hate the Astral Plane. <laughs> I hate it so much. Nothing good has ever happened on the Astral Plane. If you ever play Shadowrun, just avoid it at all costs. If you're a good mage, you're fine. Yeah, avoid it at all costs. Forever. <laughs> Trust me. So ultimately, like I say, it, 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 it really is improv. It, it's prep, which helps your improv. It, and it's giving giving moments for the characters. I, I've, I've truthfully changed campaigns at times, realizing, you know, character A hasn't done anything for a few weeks. Let's find something that makes it. And so character A has to do something. I don't want to say force them into a, a bad situation, but so I've got a guy that that is playing, you know, that's a medic, and we have nobody in the group that, that's ever really getting hurt or anything like that. Okay, fine. The group isn't getting hurt, but you come across a situation where there's NPCs that are hurt, or there, there's 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 an, a reason for that character to use those skills and to start you playing and maybe get them engaged in the game. Because sometimes what I've noticed is, is players or or people can get disengaged. And you've got to find ways to bring them back in, and and that goes back into being a good GM as well as finding ways to do that. And also banning puzzle quest. And banning puzzle quest. Well, before we jump into Savage Worlds, would you like to recommend any GM resources? I guess I was a pretty crappy GM. All I had was the DM guide and the monster manual and my imagination. Well, that's all we had. Ten years ago, that's all we had in a lot of ways. I remember trying to find AD&D stuff on, on old BBS services, like on the internet back in the late 90s. I don't even know what a BBS service is. Bolton board, but yeah. Oh, I see. So, so like a forum. Only. It's like yeah, it's a it's a sort of precursor to forums, which is a precursor to Reddit, and and I'd say right now what you're really looking at is there is so much out there as a GM now 
to to pull tools from ideas from have other GMs supporting each other because it ultimately ends up being the GM is a person that nobody wants to be. Nobody assumes being the GM because they're like, oh, I want to be the storyteller. Usually, usually it's a situation. The ones I played with that are GMs that wanted to be GMs are usually kind of the dick GMs. They're, that was me totally. <laughs> they're the ones that want to mess with everybody. And if they don't follow their story to the letter that this great, you know, novel that then they, they start a podcast 10 years, 15 years later and talk about what dicks the players were. Oh, I, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so those are the GMs I didn't necessarily like playing with, but one more quick aside, one of the worst things that I did as a DM, which I'm sure drove the players crazy was I was horrible about semantics and we almost got to a point where as if you say it at the table, you're saying it at the game and oh. I was just, I was I was terrible along those lines. So sorry, high school friends. Maybe I should have done that a little bit differently, but you know, no, we, it's I, my world. I'm the star. Love me. I've I've played in those hardcore games as well, where where if you if you say it, your character says it. If if you don't know it, your character doesn't know it. Well, my character's smarter than me. Of course they know. <laughs> no, no, no. You need to know. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not brushed up on my 14th century, you know, ballistas and weapons. I don't know how to make gunpowder from saltpeter and and uh, whatever the hell else is in that. So, yeah, the the GMing, like I said, resources. One of the biggest ones, like, is going back to it is Reddit. Uh, another one is I think I'm pretty good at just googling stuff and finding things online and not be afraid to click on a link once in a while. You're like, hmm, I don't know, but Norton's up to date. All right, Come yeah, on. yeah, yeah, exactly. Make make sure I've got all my stuff up there. Since nobody can see us, I actually made a little clicking motion with my hand. <laughs> like I was working a mouse. I'm doing it again right now. This yeah. is radio magic. Yep. The, uh, uh, the, the, the internet has revolutionized gameplay, I'd say, from, from that standpoint. There, there's elements in there, whether it be systems out there that I've thought about using to bring to Tuesday Night Game Night, which is having a PC and you can have a virtual tabletop and broadcasting stuff, say, onto the TV. And so people can see where they're at in relation to other things instead of having miniatures. Because uh, we don't really use much of that on Tuesdays right now. Part of that's because Shadowrun doesn't support it necessarily natively. But that's one of the things I'm hoping to bring back as we move to the Savage World setting is bringing in some of the combat things, some of the miniature aspect of it. And so you can kind of see things. Not necessarily for every night, but it is fun to have that out there. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've talked a lot about role-playing games so far, and we'll dive into the Savage Worlds in just a bit. But before we do, this isn't a video, or this isn't a podcast just about role-playing games. We also are big fans of video games in general. So here we go with Tom Awesome's top five video games based on role-playing properties. It's time now for... The Final Countdown! Tom Awesome's top five countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Number five. I actually stole this from you, Jared, because I had a hard time filling out my list, but Skyrim. Uh, Skyrim, it's maybe not based exactly on a D&D game, but it's kind of as D&D as you can get in a video game. You have either a melee or a magic-based character. You're running through this big world, fighting lots of monsters, exploring stuff, and it has very much a feel of kind of a lone D&D adventure. Yeah, I, I love the game. I, I've never finished any of the Elder Scrolls series. Sorry, I'm a bad... Uh... 
a video game player there. I haven't either. With Skyrim, I dumped a whole bunch of hours into it. I got through one city. Like, I barely advanced the storyline. I don't know if I even chose a faction in the Civil War. No, I, I, I've played, like, 350 hours. I run around. I'm one of those people that just runs around and does every little side quest. It's but like, oh, something on the map. Better go check it out. Exactly. I'll go kill everything. I want to be a murder hobo. <laughs> so then when it comes to the main quest, I'm like, eh, this is boring. You know, I have to follow things on rails. That's not how I like it. So I, I actually have played a ton of Skyrim, but but really I'm at the end of Act 2, and that's it. Number four for me, Shadowrun Returns. This was a PC game. I believe it was funded through Kickstarter. It came out a couple of years ago. I have it on Steam, and it's just kind of a fun adaptation of Shadowrun in the PC setting. And that's one I've never played. I had seen it, obviously, when I was prepping for Shadowrun, but... I hate to say it as a GM, I was prepping for Shadowrun, so I didn't have time to play the game. So what, what what's it about necessarily? Where is its location? So. It's in Seattle. You wind up, one of your friends dies, and there's this, uh, he offers you a reward to find out who killed him. He had cybernetic implant or something, so that when he died, this message was triggered and sent to you. So you, when you create your character, you choose your class, and then you go out and you start adventuring, and eventually you hire a crew, and you're tracking down the big bad guy, and you're murdering a bunch of gangers, and... Exploring a little bit of Seattle. And so typical Shadowrun. Typical Shadowrun. It was a very faithful, it felt like a very faithful adaptation of Shadowrun. The reviews I've seen online are great on it. So I, I it's one of those games I'll, I'll probably try to play at some point, but probably I'll never get to. Are you a PC gamer at all? Not too much, no. Again, it, it's, it's I don't have a, a good one for gaming at home, and ultimately I just do mainly consoles. So Sure. I'm not a huge PC gamer, but I do love Steam, and I put a lot of stuff on my watch list, and I gobble it up when it goes on sale, and Shadowrun was one of those. I got it for like 2 3 $4, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Next up on the list, number three, Dragon Age Origins. When we talked before we went on the air, you mentioned the Dragon Age series, but for me, the Dragon Age Origins is the, really the only one that kind of sticks to the role-playing roots that I think it was aiming for. I can see that. I, I still like the storyline that came along in, in the rest of the series. Actually. I did like the stories. I'm thinking more of the specific gameplay, kind of the pause and tactical, where you think about your move, you execute one action per character, then the next character gets to move and act. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I, for me, Dragon Age is... Dragon Age Origins is one of my favorite games of all time, both story and gameplay. It's just... I have a hard time thinking of games that take the D&D &D setting and do it better than Origins did. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you can actually see the elements of, of RPGs go into the, that game and, and into the series to some extent. But yeah, you're right. In Origins, it's definitely there. Number two, Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic 1 and 2. These games are fantastic. They came out at the right time. There hadn't been a Star Wars role-playing game. And I think they just nailed it on all fronts, on story, on the action, with the exception of the development team running out of money and having to ship two without an ending. That was kind of weird. But yeah. Overall... I, the games are incredible, and 2 is also one of my favorite games and one of the few games that I literally could not stop playing. I remember being up all night because I just had to know what happened next. Oh, I know. I, that, that, that is the series, and, and I grouped it together as both 1 and 2 because it's really one... It, it's just a wonderful series. It's, it's a lot of the same gameplay. that they Believe it or not, from 1 to 2, they changed it, but they made it better, which not necessarily always happens. And, and again, you can see the original D20... Um, Star Wars D20 roots in it with the feat system and the way the characters advance and everything. So so coming from role-playing game, going to that was was awesome. And that's actually my, one of my... That is my favorite series of, of video games right there. And we're going to spoil the ending of Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 1. If you haven't played it by now, you're not going to fucking play this game. <laughs> but I think that the story twist where... 
you find out that you're playing this Sith Lord who's had his memory erased. It's one of the best storytelling events that I can remember in any form of gaming. Oh, I, I loved it. it. It really was at the end. And, and there were drop-in elements throughout the game where you're like starting to question a little bit of that. Like, who is... You know who, who's the bad guy? Who is this faceless character? That exactly, I yeah. And 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 you're going, wait a minute, you know. And so coming from uh, uh, again, child of the '80s here, Total Recall, and, and which I've never seen. It's a classic. Yeah, movie. we'll have to talk about that later. Your movies are, are terrible here. I, I can't believe you haven't seen this. But it, but it is an element of Total Recall that you know, and it's a twist on that. But yeah, you're the bad guy in the end. You're the bad guy, and you get to make make the ultimate decision on what's going to happen and it's awesome I, I love the game i do too but for me number one is probably my all-time favorite game any console any genre Baldur's gate came out on pc in 1997 or 1998 and i have always been just enthralled with this game and i think it was maybe the first faithful adaptation of D to a video game setting it had the whole class system it had melee the melee the magic and it just it was a wonderful story with a wonderful system that was kind of a trailblazer at its time. Yeah, well, you had, uh, I believe, Pool of Radiance came out before that. There were some AD&D games that came out to PC uh, with massive... I never played them. Massive tomes. They were... Oh, think of Wolfenstein 3D-esque, where you're walking down this cubic tunnel. That That's basically some of this. Or then all of a sudden, a splash screen pops up with a bunch of text you got to read and tells you to go to your book and read page, you know... 425 on this. I'll stick with Baldur's Gate. Yeah, yeah. So they, they were fun in their own right, and they were they were good stories. Um, but Baldur's Gate was probably the first one that started to kick, I'd say, the modern, I, and maybe modern is the wrong word, but it really put into play the, the some of those basic things that we start to see today in role-playing games. I know that you had a list, a top five list as well, but we don't have a sounder for you, so where did we deviate in our list? Any other franchises oh. you want to mention? Well, and again, I had a hard time because I played. I haven't necessarily played all of these, you know, role-playing based in property games, So, but I went off of RPG-type games, so some of them, one of the great JRPGs I've ever liked is the Shining Force games. And I'm a huge fan of JRPGs. It's arguably my favorite genre, but I've never played Shining Force. And and I love it. It was actually one of our Tuesday night friends, Paul, that, that got me to play Shining Force. The, now, this was a Sega Genesis title, correct? This was a Sega Genesis title, yep. And, then, and what exactly are you playing it on? Or did you play it on? We played it on the Genesis. Do you still have a working Genesis set up? Uh, I do not. A friend of mine borrowed it in college, and it disappeared. I have. Uh, I think I have the game and cartridge. I have a bunch of cartridges in my basement in the box somewhere because I hoard things. Jerry, we're going to have to have you come over for a uh, Shining Force night because I have my Genesis. It's not hooked up right now, but it is in this house right now. Well, I think I have the PlayStation 3 Genesis system that has Shining Force on it as well as a bunch of other games that you might like then, too. Oh, fascinating. So, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so there's a few more on there. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember Golden Axe is on there. I think we're going to have to do a dedicated classic gaming day. I think that Mike would be a big fan of it. And oh, yeah. Other co-host, Jake, would love it. I think we could have an awfully fun day with some of these classic titles. Yeah, and Shining Force, is just, it's a long game. I don't remember how many hours. It seemed like a ton of hours, but compared to you know what we're used to today, it probably is 10 hours and we'd probably be done with it. <laughs> But, yeah, I love the Shining Force series. Uh, that was at five. I'd say four, then, similar thing. We talked about Dragon Age. Uh, I really liked the storylines on that. I, I liked the gameplay of, of Origins. Dragon Age 2 was not my favorite, the way that... The, 
But I didn't hate it. Like I, I still enjoyed it. I just didn't think of it as Dragon Age when I played it. Right, right. And then, and then the third installment was was pretty good on that. So I, I like the series. Third is a game I'm still playing. I haven't finished yet, which is The Witcher Three. I've never played Witcher One or Two. I'm actually playing The Witcher One right now because I'm really anal. I can't just jump in in the midway of a series. Like I have to, if I can get my hands on, it, I have to go back to the beginning and start from there. I, I realize that I'm too old to even think about trying that now. So yeah, you're smarter than I am, Jared. <laughs> so so at this point, I'm going through Witcher Three. I'm only a scratch on the surface of that game, and I realize. I'm going to love it as much as I love Skyrim. It's just an awesome game. I can already tell that. And, and so far, that's why it's at three. Um, I've got Skyrim at two because I do like it much more at this point just because I've played much more of it. Mm-hmm. And, but it, I'm guessing Witcher's going to supplant that. And finally, Kotar, Knights of the Old Republic, both one and two, like we said. Talked about it. Love those games. So. Fantastic games. So there's our top five video games based on role-playing properties. Now, how about this Savage Worlds? How did you first hear about this system, Jerry? I, I, believe it or not, just went through and looked at online and said, you know, substitute or replacement rule set for Shadowrun. You Googled killing Shadowrun. Basically, yeah. So so where we're at is last summer, summer of 2016, the uh, uh, Shadowrun 5th edition Catalyst Games released at, I think it was at Gen Con, a rule set called Shadowrun Anarchy, which is supposed to be rules light. So I had been hearing rumblings about it through the community, Shadowrun community, for quite a while, and was like, okay, I'm waiting for that. And, and we were on hiatus at the time on the Shadowrun game, so I was like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll see about how that's going to go. And ultimately, I didn't like it. It, it, it's based on, on uh, the Valiant universe or Valiant um, universe or, or uh, comic book role playing game. Interesting, I haven't heard of that. And it's it's based around more storytelling and cooperative storytelling from the group. And I just don't think with the way our group works on Tuesdays that, and especially with seven people, I just don't think it's going to be conducive to that style. It would be very very challenging. And so I, I, I poo-pooed it pretty quickly after I realized what it was. And that's when I went looking. And there was quite a few variations on Shadowrun. I started looking going, okay, I looked at Cyberpunk. Can I, can I take the Cyberpunk rules? I, I went all the way back to even, I think it was a 1989 Cyberpunk 2020 rule set. Wow. And, and went, can I cannibalize this? Uh, can I go to D20 Modern or Future and cannibalize that? And I realized that every one of those was going to change, the rule set was going to change the way the game is played, but it's also going to kind of change the atmosphere a little bit, or the atmosphere I wanted to bring to it. Mm-hmm. And then I heard about this little Savage Worlds game, which isn't too little, but at that point I just hadn't been exposed to it. And realized, as I started looking into it, that this is where Deadlands currently is housed, is within Savage Worlds. And I had played in the Deadlands game, the original Deadlands game in, in the early 2000s when it was kind of at its peak. And what's happened is, is it got re-released uh, with a D20 version and then ultimately the Savage Worlds, Shane Hensley took the property right uh, or, or licensed the property and, and built Savage Worlds, which has elements of the Deadlands gaming system in it, as well as the new rules that Savage Worlds has. So really... What you're talking about with Savage Worlds is is a generic role-playing system that I find much more robust and fun in some ways than GURPS ever was. 
GURPS is an old system similar to Shadowrun, similar to second edition AD&D that was made to be generic, but just too many rules, too many, too many reasons to, to do specialized things and all that and, and to modify the rule set. And, and the Savage World system does not have all those. So I am pretty happy with the idea of you take Savage Worlds, you can layer on Deadlands with some special setting rules and that type of thing, the way, the way certain mechanics work change from setting to setting. And somebody has gone out and I found three different versions of Homebrew, and they encourage this. The, the Savage Worlds community and, and, and publisher uh, encourages this, Pinnacle Games, and they've, they've pushed it to where there's three different versions of, sa- of uh, Shadowrun rules for Savage Worlds that I found online that are Homebrew. Uh, some are more robust than others. Part of what I'm doing is, is I, I decided to run a Deadlands campaign, the Weird West, bringing in you know, Western elements, but bringing in, you know, some of the freaky Cthulhu-esque and zombie-esque and... Just in our first couple of play sessions, we have encountered a ship captained by a zombie where crew members were dissecting people, and that's where the party woke up and kind of found themselves together, and we went from there to a poker tournament at a saloon. It seems, so far, to have a pretty incredible variety. We also saw Nosferatu, or several Nosferatu, and a horde of zombies. It has me fascinated to know what could be coming next in this system. Yeah, and and, and I won't tell. <laughs> but I, I love the setting, and I played in it myself, like I said, in the original Deadlands setting and loved it. My my plan is, 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 as a group, is we get collectively understanding the rule set. And there's not a lot of rules, but I want everybody to have a good, firm feel of the character creation, which obviously is about a 30-minute deal when you can create a full character. The rule set is pretty light for combat. It's pretty light for magic. And the computer, that's, that's kind of the aspect of the matrix. The AR, VR aspect isn't there, and that's what I'm going to have to steal from the, these homebrew setups. But ultimately, I think we're going to keep it pretty close to the original Savage Worlds rules and just play Shadowrun. It's just a setting. I mean, that, that's really all it is. It's a grim and gritty setting, which is going to have special rule set, but it's just a setting. And... I just, it, it, to me, the Shadowrun story is about story and setting more than it is about rules. And that's why I'm, I'm pursuing the Savage Worlds. I just, I just like it. It's streamlined. I think it's going to be a fantastic transition. So far, I'm just getting my head around the Savage World rules, but it seems like a very intuitive system. And even though it involves many different types of dice, it seems like they all work together pretty essentially. Let's talk about some of the things that make the Savage Worlds similar and different from D&D. On a very grand level, it feels like the way we're using the rules, if you were to look at Savage World and Deadlands, it's almost like playing a D&D campaign with the Faerun within Faerun, or a certain realm within D&D. Yeah, the, again, a setting. Yeah, I uh, would agree. It, it is like that, where, where the Deadlands adds an element or a layer on top of Savage Worlds. So you can play generic Savage Worlds. matter of fact, some of the podcasts I'm listening to actual plays are just Savage Worlds. They're not Deadlands. So you can play a Savage Worlds campaign, whether it be today, modern, and you could play with the rule set, you could play, you know, an FBI campaign, you know, an X-Files campaign, because... Which would be awesome. You know, at the same time, you can you can bring up and go into the into the future, and you can play a Star Wars-esque campaign, and you can have Space or Star Trek-esque, and... and it's the same rules. It's just campaign setting. It's not. It's not a matter of I need to have a lightsaber 
No, it's just a, a sword. It does this damage. Oh, it's an electric sword. Okay, fine. You know, <laughs> and and spells. Well, that or and and spells are really what they call powers in the Deadlands setting. And the the spells end up being, from a power standpoint, that could be the force because all it is is an effect. It's something that happens. There's damage or things like that that go with it. But ultimately, you can do any of the spells could become force powers in essence if you want to build that as Star Wars. Or the same thing, we're bringing it back to Deadlands, you know, to an old West time period. We could not have all the zombies and all that. It could be a straight-up Western game. It wouldn't have to have all those elements. I'm enjoying the Weird West. Oh, I love the Weird West. There's a lot of fun there. There's a whole meta plot that, that goes with the book, and, and you try to stay within that setting. And they bring that in, and we'll see how their group decides to touch on that or, or impact that or be elements of it. It almost feels like we've spent our whole lives trying to find the right role-playing system, and maybe we stumbled across it here. One of the core elements of any role-playing scenario, no matter how story-heavy it is, is, there's always going to be some form of combat. And how you determine order in combat often or determines whether the players live or die, or who gets to act, and who's standing on the sidelines. How does the Savage World handle initiative? That's one of the fun things about it, and I think it, it, it's a takeoff from the Deadlands combat system originally, I believe. I'm not sure if, if Savage World's... Uh, procured this on their own or came up with it on their own beforehand or if it was a situation where they just used Deadlands. But ultimately it's you just take a deck of cards and deal out a card and you start from Joker on the way down to Deuce, Ace down to Deuce. Having seen it in person, like I was a little dubious the first time you started handing out cards. I'm like, what the shit is this? But it's, uh, it's a really neat system. The Joker is kind of the catalyst for it. Once a Joker gets dealt out, you gather all the cards, and then you shuffle them, and then the deck starts over again. But you can go multiple rounds of combat without the Joker coming out. Right. And, and the other thing the Joker is, is it gives you a basically I-go-first card. So, so if you get dealt the Joker, you can go at any time in the initiative. You can choose to go first, you can choose to go last, you can interrupt at any time. So it, it is a, a, it's a pretty nice tool within, within the mechanic. If, if, from an initiative standpoint, it's I-win. It also gives you a plus two to your dice rolls, which when you're talking very limited dice rolls in this, you roll one, one D, which is your attribute, whether it be a D four, six, eight, or 12, and then you roll your, or you roll your skill, whether it be D four, six, eight, or 12, that's it. And then you roll that dice. And if you get a plus two, then that, that a success, a basic success is just a four. So from a setting standpoint or a system standpoint, it is really pretty basic. We are what are called wild cards in the game. The characters are. Is that a Savage World mechanic or is that a Deadlands? So it, it's a Savage World mechanic. The base of the game starts around having the, uh, the cards as a Deadlands mechanic in a sense, but ultimately Savage Worlds uses it with the idea that every character has a chance to win the initiative. Every character has some equal ability in that. Unlike other games where you try to game the system, or I, I, you know, find a way to build a character that gets, you know, in D and D, a plus four to every roll on their initiative, so they're always going to go ahead. Or Shadow Run, where you've got things to add to your initiative, so you get multiple actions each round versus only getting one action. It equals it out, so every player has more parity in that sense. But ultimately, it allows every character to shine within the game as well. So that's why I do like it in that sense. Another fascinating mechanic in this game is the Benny system. Um, which you've told me comes from the original Deadland system. From the player perspective, at the start of each session, you reach into a bag and you grab three poker chips that are going to be either red, white, or blue, and each one carries a different tier of abilities that you can cash it in for. Yeah, and those are basically pl allow the player to influence the game. 
So, you know, we're all players and GMs and have gone through this at times. And, you know, it's like, well, is the GM cheating? Are they hiding their dice? Ultimately, at this point in my life, it's like, I'm just going to roll the dice. What the dice say, they're what they say. Mm -hmm. But there's times when, as a player, you want to say, I want to be heroic. I want something to go my way. Or I really want to try to make this work. This allows the player then throughout the game to affect the overall play of the game with the Benny and either give them bonuses to dice rolls, give them re-rolls, various things depending upon the setting or the setup of, of the system. But there's a downside that comes with it too. Yeah, and within the within that is is every time a Benny is spent, the GM gets to get a Benny back. And so then they also have that at a point where they can affect the game because it's like if I really want the villain to win... Players have spent bennies, I can make the villain win with bennies on, on the other spend side. Or I can make sure that the villain has a better than average chance of winning. I'll put it that way. We've been playing this campaign for a couple of weeks now. We've had a few sessions now. What are some of the early frustrations in running this system? Really, it's just been learning the new system. How, how does the combat work? How does the magic work? Uh, how do how does the, the edges or hindrances work? And, and the, the marriage of all that into... The, the way that we play the game. Ultimately, every character, there there's a lot of options. It's just like D&D in the sense of, of having feats. So there's a lot of options, and those edges and hindrances come up, and, and everybody's got different ones. And so you end up with a situation where character A can do this, but character B can't, and it's because of an edge or a hindrance. So that, that, that's been tough to learn all that. And then remind me that my character wound up with kind of a special hindrance. How did that come about again? Was that a die roll? Was that a card draw? It was a it, card draw, wasn't it? It was a card draw. So I took, that's actually a homebrew thing, and I don't recommend pulling some of that out necessarily right away if you're going to start off with this. Uh, having played in Deadlands before, I knew some of the way that the world went. I wanted to have everybody to have a card draw and, and get into, if you know what Harrowed are, uh, that is a, a dead character, basically, that's fighting uh, a spirit. So this card draw came from that world of Deadlands, where there's, there's an aspect of every character uh, has to have some special things happen. What I did was is, is put that in as a homebrew element and basically made everybody draw, even though they're not dead characters. Interesting. Um, the idea was is everybody came in with this idea of, I know what I want to play, and I had in my case, I wanted to be a Pinkerton agent who's afraid of ghosts overrunning the world and wiping out all of humanity. Yep. So everybody had like a general idea of what they wanted to play. And they had some things like, we're all still learning the system. So I was like, well, let's add an element of this to change the world for them. So that they have something that they don't know on top of it. And so you've got your character, but you've got elements to your character that all of a sudden, positive, negative, or both, that, that came up in this card draw that you weren't prepared for. And so what I, part of that was is to set every character on an, I don't want to say uneven base, but to get it so the players weren't comfortable in their character right out of the gate. And so that there was this little added thing that it's like, well, why do I have to worry about this? Why? And so it's something else to think about as a player. And part of that is is to set that into the world in motion and going, which was part of the reason why I started you all off in a boat in a, you know, one spot in the middle of nowhere where all of a sudden you got a situation that's bringing everybody together. We talked about Shadowrun earlier. How do you bring a group together? Well, I brought a group together going, you're in the middle of being captured, and that's it. And so who are you? Why are you here? And get just keeping all that uneasiness. So it was all about lending that uneasiness to the characters. And at the same time, a lot of those special abilities are things that can make your character more heroic in the end. 
that not everybody's going to have. But yeah, it's very fascinating. One of the other things that I really do like is is with within being able to do the homebrew rule. At the same time, there's a lot of those out there within within Savage Worlds. Is the fact that you the pace of the story compared to like Shadowrun is so much faster in Savage Worlds. You could do a combat. I think we went through eight rounds of combat in one night. Where, where you know, in, in Savage Worlds, in the time that it would have taken us to get through two rounds in Shadowrun. Two rounds, not even two entire combats. No, no. And so we're talking one combat. We can get through it very quickly in this game. Even with the the other night, the latest night was, is a, like you said, it was a big bar fight with zombies, basically, in Nosferatu. Everybody was running in a different direction. I was dealing with about four different directions of groups on people doing different things. But and you can go on, but I'm going to want to expand with two very, very funny things that our party members did. So, so managing that was tough, but at the same time, the system allowed me to keep it flowing. And so we were bouncing back and forth from scene to scene relatively quickly, rather than concentrating like you would in Shadowrun, uh, rather than concentrating on combat for, for you know, 15 or 20 minutes with one group, I'm able to deal with the combat and resolve it in a matter of under two, three minutes, and we're bouncing on to the next character or next group of characters with something else that's happening. Speaking of groups of characters, it's pretty funny because we're all in the same building together at this poker tournament, and things start to happen. And there's a VIP upstairs, so I run upstairs to get the VIP because he's kind of tied to my character story. And I yell to the rest of the party, and half the party is interested and wants to come upstairs with me. The other half of the party is kind of like, eh, and stays down in the main room. Well, the last guy up the stairs decides to light the building on fire behind him. He takes his gas globe, and he smashes it at the base of the stairs, essentially cutting us off from half the party. Yep, starting a fire in the middle of a hotel. Right, right next to another character. Yeah, it's always a blast with this group. Which, literally, I thought that was going to be the funniest moment of the night, but then shortly after, one of our characters is running for a back exit. There's a monster there. He gets hammered by the monster, so he comes running back, and he decides that he just wants to get out of the building. So he jumps out a window, he crashes into the street, and his next turn, he looks around and sees that shit's a lot worse out on the street, so he spends his next turn jumping back in through the window, back into the burning hotel. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, let's jump into a burning hotel because I'm being surrounded by a horde of zombies. <laughs> We've only had a few sessions so far, but it's been a very interesting world and setting and system so far. So I'm curious if you could tie our subjects together today. How are you, How is Deadlands going to bridge the gap between Shadowrun and continuing that story with the new system? Basically, it's learning mechanics, right? So, so that's what I come back to all the time here. It, I'm going to have a group of players that's going to have played in Deadlands or played in Savage Worlds ultimately with basically the basic Savage Worlds rules that's going to know how to play the game. So I'm not going to have to be managing, you know, how the combat works. Everybody's going to have a feel for how the combat works. Everybody's going to know, oh, I just roll this and this and I'm done. I'm, you know, the, the, the fact that a gun in the Old West is like 2d6 damage, and the fact that a gun in Savage Worlds in the future in Shadowrun is 2d6 damage, it's, it's going to do the same thing. Because they're both, whether you want to call it a slug thrower, whether you want to call it a laser pistol, Laser. Whether you want to call it a slug thrower or whether you want to call it a laser pistol, it, it's 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 a gun is a gun, and that's what I like about the Savage Worlds setting. The other thing I'm going to like about it is characters can be created in about a half hour in Savage Worlds, and not a month long process in our two and a half hour sessions on Tuesday nights. We added a character to the game mid midway through the the group that had been playing in, in Shadowrun, and it was one entire night was lost by me trying to work with that person, trying to get a character set up and into the game. 
that is just madness. And if you're going to be playing with a character for a long time, it makes sense. And it gives you a lot of flexibility, but... Well, and what sucks is, is in this case here, it's an experienced role player. He had a great character concept, knew what he wanted to do. But again, it just takes a dang long to build the character within within Shadowrun. There's so many rules again. And that's, again, Savage Worlds is pretty rules light. At this point, I think I could probably build a character. If you've got a strong concept, I feel comfortable enough. I think I could build a character in 10 to 15 minutes. That's awesome. That is very refreshing. Even D&D characters take longer than that. Although the fifth edition D and D, I'd say, is pretty quick now too, though. I, I would agree. I think I think D and D may be on the right right path on that a little bit, where they they've opened up the, the the idea that they don't have to have all the rules around it. Just have a character. This is what they advance. You advance pretty quickly and and go through it. You know, the 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 three point five, which I love to death, or the D twenty system, which I love. They 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 were great. But I, I really find an elegance in keeping it simple with D&D 5th Edition now, too. Is there anything else you want to touch on on um, Savage Worlds before we move on to the closing segment? I don't think so. We, we've talked about everything on that. So. Awesome. Well, it's been fascinating learning this new system. I think you're doing a great job of getting the players incorporated into it and getting us up and running on the new system. And I think it'll be... A wonderful transition. I really look forward to getting back to the Shadowrun character. It'll be interesting to see how the chaos that I always thrive on in Shadowrun works in a new system. That will be a little intriguing. I, I actually think you'll be able to project more chaos into the game, believe it or not. Because it's gonna things are going to move faster. So just in that sense, the game is going to be more chaotic. The storyline, we may be able to wrap up the storyline in a matter of session, a few sessions in some ways with what I've got planned, just because of of the fact that we're going to be moving faster. That'll be fascinating. I think it was very telling when one of our friends, Mike, made the comment during Shadowrun, I forget what specifically I suggested, but he said, and that's why you're not allowed to set the strategy for us. <laughs> ever. So it'll be fun to get back into the Shadowrun setting with a new system, and I think it's going to be great for the entire group. We've covered a lot of ground on different role-playing games today, so let's take it home. I don't like the phrase, take it home. We've covered a lot of ground on a couple different systems and fronts today. Let's close out the show with some fan mail. And usually we have our fans write in and send us suggestions via either email or Twitter. But I thought this will be a special edition because it turns out you have some bones to pick with the movies that I have seen and not seen. Well, it's more so just that you consider yourself a geek and you haven't seen Total Recall. You haven't seen Blade Runner. I, I don't remember what else. You've never seen Westworld. There's a lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that I haven't seen that Jake was just appalled by. Well, which which I don't understand. I mean, oh, wait, I don't even know what Westworld is. What is that one? Okay, so so you got the original movie, but now you've got a TV show on on HBO as well with Westworld that's all surrounding it. So the idea is it's a background with androids and and it's a theme park, and I'll leave it at that. Huh. It's a great great thing, and so the fact that you like Shadowrun, you like the setting, and yet these are all elements that come, whether it's Blade Runner, whether it's Total Recall, whether it's Westworld, those are all elements of Shadow, have that have elements into Shadowrun, or Shadowrun has elements of. Well, I borrowed Blade Runner from a buddy, so maybe I'll watch that movie. I did watch Predator after recording episode four, and it was a pretty good film. Okay, so have you watched Monty Polython and the Holy Grail yet? I'd seen that before. It's a different experience watching it with you guys on Tuesday nights, because you have six different people quoting pretty much every line from the entire movie, and it's kind of a cacophony. It's just, 
it's a very surreal thing trying to watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail with you guys. Yeah. So yeah, well, we know we know our way around that. It's been out since 1974. So that was seven years before I was born. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on Arnold movies? Do you share Jake's opinion that Arnold is an incredible action star that I've missed out on most of my life? Okay. Well, it depends. So I know I know you you appreciate good acting and dramas and that type of thing. Arnold is not going to win an Academy Award for his acting ability. But Although I think in Predator, it was the least Arnold I'd ever seen him, and that was one of the things that I thought was so compelling about the movie. Stick around. <laughs> get to the chopper. Yeah, get to the chopper. But for the most part, I thought he was a very toned-down version of himself, and I could actually see something other than Arnold for a large portion of that. And I, I think as his career went on, he became... More he, of the caricature? He became more of the caricature than, than what he was originally. Watch Conan. Watch watch some of those early films, and he is trying to play the character more straight up as a character, and not be a caricature of himself, um, playing the Terminator in the you know T two or whatever. So I I like his films. I, they're not the greatest acted things in the world, but having grown up you know seventies and eighties, the Arnold films are the action films that I remember. I mean, you had Arnold, you had Stallone, and then you ended up with Bruce Willis with the Die Hard movies, and they were all awesome. Well, I have a whole lot in my Netflix queue just waiting to arrive on the doorstep. One more thought on movies before we close down the show. What was your opinion on our overall movie tournament and the decision that Star Wars was the best movie of all time? The best dork movie of all time? I, I couldn't understand the disagreement with, with the way that you said Star Wars. I, I actually, and I get into this debate with some other friends of mine too on Star Wars. I, I'm a huge... Tell me you're a Jedi guy. I'm a huge... Re- uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back guy. Oh man! And Jedi up until up until the new movies was the worst Star Wars film that had ever been made. So good lord, get out of my house! I'm very surprised to hear that stronger reaction about it. That's uh, Ewoks suck. Yeah, it's not so much about the Ewoks for me, but I, the redemption storyline of uh, Vader is is fine and from a dramatic standpoint. I get it's it. Fine. But but I just love the the Empire Strikes Back. I I know the argument against it is is that it's not a complete movie. Um, it doesn't stand on its own. But but for me, that just the dark turn that it takes is is what I like about it the most. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you know the, the the new Star Wars you know Episode Eight movie coming out, and hopefully this will follow that same strategy of being a dark dark turn. Do you think it'll be a direct parody of Episode? Five, much like episode seven had some strong similarities to episode four. I, I hope not. I Me I, too. I, I I was a little I The Force Awakens I was not my favorite in that sense because it, it, it had too many callbacks in that sense. Just like Like the planet that killed other planets, like, give me a break. Like I overall I enjoyed the movie immensely and I really enjoyed the characters, but the planet that killed other planets, I'm like you couldn't think of anything other than the Death Star again. Then a planet killer, yeah. And and have the main character start off on a desert world all alone as like a late teenager. I didn't even realize that in it, parallel. Wow. It, yeah, so, yeah. I like the movie. Um, I actually would say I like Rogue One better than I like Awakens at this point because I think on its own it stands alone as a better movie. I'm with you there. What are you more excited for, Episode Eight or the Han Solo movie? At this point, episode eight, I'm a little nervous about the Han Solo movie because Harrison Ford is Han Solo, and so for me, it's going to be, be very strange to see tough else to see another that. character. 
but you got to give them a chance. And, and so hopefully we'll see something that, that is fun to watch and, and has some great stories. I remember watching the young Indiana Jones with River Phoenix back on TV back in the day and went, okay, I get it. This is kind of fun. So it can be done. It's just, it's going to be different. I did actually watch that show too. Well, we have lots of Star Wars to look forward to. It's been a very fun afternoon, but I think it's time to call it quits here. Thanks so much for coming by. Well, thank you. It's been a fun discussion in role-playing. I'm not sure what our next topic is going to be, but hopefully we can get some podcasts rolling out more recently. Since uh, the last podcast I recorded, I bought a house. I painted a whole bunch of rooms in the house and done a whole bunch of work. I've had an annual conference for work and a lot of stuff coming up, so we hope to be back on a more regular schedule with Outside is Overrated. Remember, you can check us out on the website, OutsideIsOverrated.com. You can email the show at OverratedPod at gmail.com. That's OverratedPod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Tom underscore underscore awesome. Also on Instagram at Tom underscore underscore awesome. Jerry, where people can connect with you online, uh, or do they basically have to find a phone book and look up Jerry? Well, yeah, I, you know, Smoke Signals works, and, uh, you know, I use an app still, so... You know. What about Messenger Pigeons? Yeah, I, they get a, they poop, but yeah, they're... Fine. I'm going to start just bringing birds to your house. <laughs> well, Jared, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for everyone who listened to the show. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you next time on Outside is Overrated. Whoa!